A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode 11. Today, we're going to continue our series of episodes on the book, This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. Uh, before we proceed, I want to revisit two definitions that are very, very important. I'm going to talk about secular faith and religious faith. Okay, so to have secular faith is to be devoted to a life that will end, to be dedicated to projects that can fail or break down. To have religious faith, then what does it mean to have religious faith? Right. So in contrast, uh, today, and because we're trying to use the terms in this book, um, religious faith means forms of faith that devalue uh, our finite lives as a lower form of being. So the quote from the beginning of the book, our author, uh, Martin Hagland, he writes, to be finite means primarily two things, to be dependent on others and to live in relation to death. I am finite because I cannot maintain my life on my own and because I will die. So essentially, a secular faith says, okay, well, let's get on with it. Let's get, with, let's get on with being finite. Let's have faith in the midst of finitude. Um, let's find meaning in this finite life of ours. Let's Whereas a religious of, faith... Let's make the know, most of it. That's mm-hmm. right. Well, in some sense... And, and really, it's all about in what sense, uh, because you can attribute all sorts of meanings and bring all sorts of meanings to life in a finite life, honestly. Uh, religious, but a religious faith in the, con- concept, in the context of this book is, is to essentially rage against the dying of the light, to find a way to overcome finitude. And this involves overcoming either death or dependence on others, or both, because that's what finitude means in the context of this book. So when we say religious, we're, we, we're, we mean this. We don't just mean in related to Christianity, Judaism, Islam, etc. We mean uh, a, a way of life or thinking that is opposed to finitude as a suitable place to find, um, to find faith and meaning. Okay, excellent. All right, with that in mind, uh, today we're going to be talking about love. We're going to be talking about love, and we're going to begin with the church father, Augustine. Or yeah, and we're talking about the chapter on love in this book, which is the which is chapter, chapter two, two, the third chapter. <laughs> well, the introduction, I'm not really counting it because it's not, it's not numbered. So it's chapter two in the book, in the table of contents. Got it. All right, so <laughs> we're going to start with Augustine, or Augustine. So with Augustine, Augustine, love presents a problem for the believer. And the problem that it presents to the believer is that when you love another person, you're liable to lose that person, 
which in turn makes you liable to life-shattering disappointment and perhaps even faith-rupturing disappointment, which of course, as a religious person, you do not want to experience. And so Augustine, Augustine, um, he differentiates between two forms of love. Of course, he wrote in Latin. So he talks about the first, and this is called cupiditas. What is cupiditas? Okay, let me read from page 76. Cupiditas is the love of a finite being or a finite form of life as an end in itself. For Augustine, this is the wrong kind of love. Why? Because it makes us dependent on what we can lose. And you don't want to be dependent on something finite because you make yourself vulnerable. And, of course, you're loving something other than God. And in Augustine's understanding, we have to love everything. Uh, less than God, and we have to love everything through God in a way. So the idea of loving something in and of itself, or a person, loving a person in and of herself or himself, that's a big no-no for uh, Augustine. So instead of this love, which I, I can see is very much related to the idea of secular faith, right? So he advocates for caritas. Caritas. What is caritas? Okay, let me tell you. Caritas is defined Okay, I'm almost there. I'm flipping through my book over here. So for Augustine, cupiditas is a love that we have to avoid. Why? Because we're, we're making ourselves vulnerable and we're opening ourselves to pain that may shatter your faith, may shatter your life, and it doesn't provide a, a solid anchor. Instead, what he advocates is that we should convert this type of love, which is natural, which is human, which is inevitable, and which you have to fight against as a religious person. And he wants to convert this into caritas. And caritas is when you love something not in and of itself, or you're not loving a person for himself or herself, but you're loving, you're using rather this person as a as a medium to love God even more. So you're loving a person, an object, whatever it is, as a medium to a deeper devotion to God, to a deeper love for God. And you're, you're having a form of love that is eternity focused. It's eternity focused. And so this is what he advocates for Caritas. Any other thoughts on this, Ben? Yeah, yeah. So well, I think what we've identified here is uh, is that there's a concern about vulnerability. Um, the it, It's a sense that why would we love something that's finite, that's subject to death, and that depends on other people? Um, this This is just a recipe for getting hurt eventually um, as, as you lose that thing or as it betrays you or, and so on. And uh, so it's, 
well, without giving too much away, it just seems like it's a bit of a fear-based approach to love where you're trying to find the type of love that that can't turn around and and, uh, and leave you at a loss in any sort of way. Um, yeah. And, also, I, I, and that's a, like a very common human concern <laughs> is if I invest in this person or this thing, will I, will I lose out on my investment or will I be harmed as a result? And these are all questions we want answered. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's a self-focused form of love, I would say, because you're, you're focused on yourself and you're asking the question, how can I minimize or destroy altogether the possibility that I get hurt, perhaps irreparably hurt in the process? So you're thinking of how can I minimize the pain that love might, in, might entail for me in a given relationship in a given devotion to a particular project. That's what I think from my perspective is the problem with Augustine's take here. So our author, Martin Hagland here, he says, he thinks that Augustine has written a bunch of very deep things, but he almost seems to say that Augustine is sort of accidentally deep here or accidentally helpful in spite of himself. Because although Augustine is allegedly pointing people towards this caritas or this love that's based on eternity or that's instrumentally loving through a love of God. Uh, it's, he nevertheless has a, has his eye on the present and his eye on actual risks and actual relationships. And he's very keen observer of human, of the human experience. Um, and so at the beginning of this chapter, our author says that Augustine emphasizes that living in this world is always a matter of faith, not religious faith in eternity, but secular faith in what is temporal and exposes you to risk. This is the faith I explore and defend in this book. So, so our author is saying that while Augustine, um, Augustine is trying to describe how do we love in a risky way. And and this is exactly the same thing that our author wants to talk about is, except that the difference is, is that our author doesn't see this as a flaw. He sees it as an essential feature or an essential property of what it means to, to love. He, our author says, uh, I'll read another quote from him. He says, um, he says, the belief that I can fail is part of what motivates me to try to succeed to keep my attention on what I'm doing and to improve my arguments and formulations. So there he's talking about working on a book. He wrote this book, of course, and naturally you write about writing a book when you write a book. So <laughs> he says, it's, it's this, uh, it's to put it sort of bluntly, it's this possibility of failure or this fear of failure even that, that motivates a person to, to do their best at what they're doing at the moment. Um, I, I don't know, I think that's very relatable. Like I've, we, many of us have the experience of driving a car. Uh, driving a car can go really badly, really quickly. You could turn your wheel 30 degrees and end, your, and end your life and the life of your passengers. It keeps you focused on what's in front of you. <laughs> it's this possibility of, 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 of loss and even catastrophe that actually keeps you focused on the very simple thing that you have to do, which is just go straight down this road often. And I think that applies to all sorts of situations. It's this possibility 
of loss that keeps us, uh, just keeps us at our best when we're working on anything. Yeah. I can see people disagreeing with that, but uh, yeah, I think generally that holds. He also says, our author talks about, uh, he gives another example. He says, if we're engaged in a project of creating greater social justice, this is a quote I'm reading. He says, we share an existential commitment to a set of principles and a form of practice that principles demand. We believe in certain values and in the importance of upholding them through contestation and struggle. This existential commitment is subject to the necessity, to the necessary uncertainty of secular faith. We cannot be certain that our collective project will hold together and the consequences of our actions are not given in advance. Now this really resonates me because, well, every year on like Martin Luther King Day, whatever in the United States, I mean, Canadians cannot avoid uh, American media. So we, <laughs> we managed to hear all the, all the things that people are saying. And, and, and one thing I commonly hear and I'm not sure if this is a quote or not, is this idea that the arc, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. Have you heard this before? Yeah, definitely many times. Okay. I always have mixed feelings about it. Um, so it, it would be nice if it was true that things get better inevitably, but it just happens to not be true. Things do not actually get better inevitably things can actually go backwards and often they do. Um, okay, let me get specific. I've, over the past year or so, uh, one of the topics that's been coming up in some of the sort of the news analysis podcasts that I've listened to is going back to the history of reconstruction in the United States, um, which is after the Civil War. And there's a good argument to be made that the political decisions made during a period of about 14 years or 14 or 15 years, essentially turned back any possibility of progress for a hundred years in the United States on the issue of racial equality. Um, now I know things are complicated and, but when I, but whenever I hear this idea about the arc of the moral universe bending towards justice, that starts to pop to mind is that we can always hit the snooze alarm for another hundred years. This is always an option available to us. Um, I'm also reminded of George Orwell. I read several of his essays years ago and he was writing in the 1930s and 1940s with this cloud of, of German and Spanish uh, fascism on the, on the horizon and the growing threat in Europe. And he envisioned a thousand years of slavery in the future as a real live possibility for, for Europe and the world. I just think it's much more valuable to have those possibilities in, in, in front of us than it is to, to simply comfort ourselves with the thought that things will just get better because there really is no reason to think that that's true. <laughs> um, it's this possibility of catastrophic failure and intractable regress that should drive us forward in the, in the projects that we work on, even though they risk, they risk failure. It's because they risk failure that we work so hard on them. Yeah. yeah I think when people so. use this saying, and I don't know what the source is, but it's very, very popular. They use it to try to motivate people to have hope and to be optimistic and to not, to not give into despair. Right. Which is good. 
But again, I also have mixed feelings. I think it's exactly the opposite. Because I mean, since we're talking about slavery in the United States, slavery was eventually abolished, but it took a lot of work to get that slavery to be abolished. We're not for the work for all these people who fought and who did so many things to bring it about. I think it probably would have kept going for a lot longer. So yeah, I think good things happen only when moral agents demand that it happen and work and are devoted to making sure that it happens, whether it takes a few years, decades, or even centuries, even centuries at times. So yeah, I think good things happen only when moral agents choose to be engaged, choose to be devoted, choose to sacrifice, and choose to just have a, a big picture in mind. The great things take time, but they are called upon to play a part. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, okay, good. So, so back to Augustine, and I guess we're, what we're talking about here is the idea that the real live possibility of failure, the vulnerability to loss, is actually a powerful driver towards action and towards um, attention and focus in life. Uh, and so what, the, what our authors wants to challenge Augustine over is this idea that what we really want to do is strive for a perspective in which we're actually invulnerable, in which the alleged vulnerabilities that we experience are some, somehow washed out or overcome in an, in an eternal invulnerability. Um, and, and yeah, and for our, our author, if that were the case, we would just lose all the benefits of vulnerability as well, the, the power that it has to focus us. So if, unless you have something else to say about that, maybe we should connect here to Stoicism now. Um, sure, yeah. And contrast Stoicism with Augustine, as our author does here, uh, and see what they have in common. Okay, so Stoicism gets a number of mentions in this book, as well as Buddhism, which I love because I feel like Buddhism in a lot of the books that I have read is barely mentioned at all. And here, both Stoicism and Buddhism are, are labeled as religious, not so much because of their theological claims or lack thereof, but because, again, going back to the definition, both Stoicism and Buddhism are usually employed in such a way that we minimize the importance of this life, our life right now. Uh, with Stoicism, what happens is that in Stoicism, virtue is the only good, right? Virtue is the only good. It's one of the mottos. And I think it's admirable. I think it's great. I love it. But the idea here is that no matter what happens to you, if you are virtuous, that is everything. That is everything, no matter what happens to you. So let me quote here. The Stoics argued that the deepest cause of our vulnerability is not the fact that our bodies are frail, that accidents may befall us, or that people may betray us. Rather, what makes us vulnerable is our belief that these things matter and define who we are. 
The aim of Stoicism is to make us independent of everything that may upset us. The goal of Stoicism is literally apathy, apatheia, the freedom from all passions, since passions hold us hostage to a world, this world, that is beyond our control. Yeah, so I think he, he describes Stoicism exactly right here. Now for the Stoics, of course, the passions are negative emotions. They're not good emotions. So a feeling of peace, a feeling of enjoyment, serenity, those are emotions. They were not against those. They were against emotion, emotions such as fear, rage, anger, lusts. I mean, anything that is destructive or that can very quickly get out of hand, they were against it. So yes, for Stoicism, the goal is that you do not want to be ruled by these passions. You want to have the type of positive emotions that derive from knowing that you're doing what's right and from just being at peace, that you're doing your very best to be a virtuous person, to be a person of character, to be a person that is doing good in the world. And refuses to be discouraged or depressed by the situations at hand because you remind yourself that after all, that's, that's not under my control. And the only thing that matters is my character. If, if an accident happens, if a tornado comes and blows my house and I die in the process, doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that you are a person of character. Uh, and again, I love this. I, I think these are very helpful reminders, techniques, and so forth. But I think one of the problems with Stoicism is that it does tend to foster a sense of detachment. Like in order to make this happen, you very much have to detach yourself from what is happening around you, or at the very least, minimizing as much as possible the things that are happening around you, people's pains, deaths, anything literally that can get in the way of you having uh, peace and a good character. So Stoicism is then by the definition we've been using a religious uh, system or set of techniques because it can very easily turn you into somebody who becomes detached from this world because this world doesn't matter to you. What matters to you is only your reaction to this world. The example that you're setting in this world, that's what matters. What's happening in the world, that doesn't really matter. It's always your reaction. So I think that he is correct in, in pushing back and saying that in this way, Stoicism is a religious movement of sorts. It's interesting. I wonder if we could like reframe stoicism in a more positive way by describing it as a project that is um, vulnerable to failure <laughs> where the project is to develop your own character yeah absolutely and then you can have a secular stoicism <laughs> yeah however uh yeah i think that actually something along those lines is possible maybe um well let's move into the secular alternative to to the religious approach to love, to an approach that effectively makes love instrumental to an eternal good. 
that seeks to overcome vulnerability. Uh, well, the secular alternative is to just realize that vulnerability is part of love, that a love without vulnerability is something entirely different. And I, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I kind of, I want to agree with that, but it also feels a little bit like just defining the words as required to make it true. <laughs> it seems like an analytic victory, um, if you know what I mean. But I think that it is true to some extent. I think it rings true in our experience that that it is the vulnerability that makes that makes something valuable and makes something interesting. Um, I think so. And uh, yeah, I guess let me just say one more thing about this. Uh, even in like a marriage relationship, um, in this small amount of marriage advice literature that I have consumed, one thing that has popped out to me is this idea that in a marriage, sometimes people can see the other person as a sure thing. Like now they're guaranteed this relationship is permanent. Um, we've committed to it. I don't need to worry about it anymore. In a sense, the relationship receives this, achieves this status of invulnerability, maybe in the eyes of one of the two people, right? One of the two people thinks this relationship is, is rock solid now. There's nothing that can happen to it. No matter what I do, it'll still be fine. Of course, this isn't true. Um, I think, I think that everybody knows that, that a, a relationship will fall apart if if one person does certain things that the other person doesn't like, uh, especially over time and especially if they take it for granted. And so even it seems that even in like a commit a committed relationship like marriage, this keeping in mind the vulnerability of that relationship is actually a way to enrich it and and preserve it over time. Yeah, and it's 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 important to realize that in marriage, the commitment is ongoing. You cannot just say, well, you know, I was vulnerable five years ago and that's gonna cut it. That's not gonna cut it. You're not gonna have a good relationship if the commitment is not ongoing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, One more thing here. So, so the next the next aspect we've talked about vulnerability. I mean, we keep on saying the same things in a bit of a circle here, but these are the themes of this chapter. So we talked about vulnerability. I'll try not to say anything else about that. Uh, as an end in itself, that on the on the approach um, to secular faith, the secular world, sort of this life. This life, that's the title of the book, is an end in itself. It's instrumental for the sake of something else, such as for the sake of an eternal life. Uh, it, it's, it's something that has the potential for meaning and value as an end in itself now. And so this is the secular approach that, that our book is advocating, is um, a secular love is a love that loves the beloved as an end in themselves. Yeah. Now, I've, I think I shared this last week, and I, I'll share it again. 
having read this book, I've come to think that this is what the love of God should be like in, especially as described in Romans 5, 5, um, that the love of God, that God loves humans as ends in themselves. God loves people as ends in themselves. And for me to receive the love of God and to love others with the love of God is also to love them as an end in themselves as well. I think that this, I think that this is something that I'm willing to embrace. Um, contrary to how uh, Augustine has been depicted here. So, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, I agree. And I think if we don't love people just for who they are, non-instrumentally, then we're objectifying them. And that's not good. We should not objectify people. Uh, I agree with you also that, I mean, the gospel itself, I mean, in 1 Corinthians chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul talks about, you know, how the word of the cross is foolishness to people, right? It's still foolishness to us today because, I mean, what is proclaiming the word of the cross? Well, that the Son of God became vulnerable. He was obedient and he was willing to die on a cross, a very shaming death. I mean, wow. So, yeah, the gospel itself shows us a God that loves us and becomes vulnerable in order to rescue this relationship with us. And so I think it definitely goes against the grain to make the type of arguments that Augustine is making. And I think we need to say no to Augustine on this and many other items. And... Uh, <laughs> And we do need to we do need to agree with Martin Haglund here and say that we need something like this, even if we end up uh, resourcing it differently from the New Testament. Absolutely. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, and I think about the mission of Jesus. I, I especially if you, like in light of our first half dozen episodes on this podcast, um, Jesus set out on a project that was vulnerable to failure. And that project was to confront his own people, the people of Israel in the second temple period in the first century Palestine, mm -hmm. to confront them with the character of the God that they claimed to worship. And to basically kick off a national revival around the little, around this love of God as manifest in the person of Jesus. And guess what? That project failed. <laughs> so the, by midway through the gospels, it's clear that um, it's clear that the leaders are not going to permit any national revival of this sort. It's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so the work of Jesus, the work, the thing that he literally dedicated his life to was a failed project. Um, now, if you look at Albert Schweitzer's portrait of Jesus, it's an apocalyptic perspective where, yes, it's a failed project, but also he feels like it's going to usher in actions by God beyond his own resources. Uh, 
So that may not fit so well with the secular faith perspective here. But the cry of Jesus on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and into your hands, I commend my spirit. Mm-hmm. I think that we can safely say that from the perspective of Jesus, it was a failed project. And, um, and it was carried out as any, as an exemplary secular faith project <laughs> in, in that sense. Um, maybe I'm stretching a little bit, but no, you're not, not at all. Uh, I don't remember what chapter, but I think it's, I don't know, in that chapter two, he definitely talks about how there are different ways, there are different ways to interpret the event of the cross. And there's absolutely a secular interpretation of what is happening there. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so we've mentioned vulnerability. We've mentioned, oh, we're back to vulnerability again with failure. Yeah. We mentioned uh, end in itself, loving as an end in itself, or loving someone as an end in themselves, the secular life as an end in itself. Well, and then the third aspect is this idea of, the short time that we have together with other people. Uh, In this life, I have a limited amount of time to spend with my children, my wife, um, Mm -hmm. my podcast hosts, (laughs) co-hosts, friends, coworkers. um, And you know what? That time is even more limited now because we can't even get together face-to-face anymore in many cases. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. So, so from an eternal perspective, it's easy to say things like, oh, well, don't worry. If they were believers, you can spend a lot of time with them later in heaven, right? Is this a suitable <laughs> response to the fact that we don't have a lot of time together? I don't think so. I think that just devalues the time that we do have. Uh, and, and the big takeaway from this book and from this chapter is that it's the shortness of or the precariousness of our time together that makes love between people so valuable. Um, Mm -hmm. If there was an unlimited amount of time that was guaranteed, it would be something much different. Our our fellowship with one another would be something much different than what it actually can be and what it actually is. Yes, I agree. Okay, so okay, so now maybe one more quote here. No, go ahead. Okay, so he says, our author says towards the end of uh, this theme, he says, uh, our task then would be to own the fact that this is the only life we have for better or for worse, rather than seeking to leave this life behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. Now, let me say something from a religious perspective here again. Uh, So the life that I have is from a religious perspective, it's a gift. It's a gift from God that I am here and now. Uh, It can also be a curse, I guess, depending on where here and now is (laughs) what's happening. But let's just say that our life is a gift. Um, I think that some 
Christians, in fact, maybe most Christians, have adopted this idea that our soul is indestructible and that, and this maybe has to do with the idea of like a belief in heaven and hell uh, and maybe a belief in eternal conscious torment in hell or eternal bliss in heaven, which is all Augustinian perspective, I guess. <laughs> but what I want to focus on is this idea that the human soul is this indestructible eternal object that will exist forever. I don't think that that is a biblical or ancient view. Uh, I think that if you want to have a, a view that sort of comports with the views of the people who wrote the Bible, as opposed to, I hate to do this, somebody will shoot me down, as opposed to sort of like the Greek philosophy that into which the Bible was received, right, and the New Testament was received, you're going to have the idea that life, even eternal life, is a gift and an ongoing gift. That the only reason that I might persist beyond the grave would be because God would sustain me in my existence, not because I am, my soul is asbestos and nothing can destroy it. Mm -hmm. I don't have a soul that, that is indestructible. Um, just like every day is a gift, any afterlife is also a gift. <laughs> and and uh, anyway, that's, I just wanted to point out that contrast that in a secular version of Christianity, which I'm trying to construct on the fly here, we really need to emphasize that there's no indestructible eternal soul. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to move on to talking about another character, now a modern character. So his name is Carl O. Nausgaard. He was a Norwegian author. He wrote a, a volume titled My Struggle. And apparently it's about 3,600 pages in six volumes. And what this is, this is basically a secular form of the confessions, right? Like Augustine is known for his book of confessions, which I confess to having never read and I probably will never read. Uh, <laughs> Done. <laughs> this right here, it's a secular <laughs> form of that, okay? So Nausgaard is writing about his life, his struggles and what he is learning and what he's trying to achieve. So. Why, why are we talking about this now, Ben? Okay, well, we're trying to describe secular faith and especially especially love, uh, love in the context of secular faith. And this chapter, chapter two, the third chapter of the book, contrasts um, Augustine and, and Nausgaard, basically. And, and because they both have a very autobiograph autobiographical body of writing where they write about themselves and their inner life and their experience of living through time, past, present, and future. Uh, and where as Augustine reinterprets his life from the perspective of an eternity uh, and makes the present moment sort of only instrumental to eternity, Nausgaard is an example of somebody who really leans into the present moment and makes the most of it. Uh, Mm -hmm. In a nutshell, because he pays attention to it and his paying attention to the present moment, which is clear from his writing, 
is something that Augustine did as well. Augustine paid attention to the present moment as well. And that's why lots of his writing is so valuable. Um, but then he kind of, but his twist, his eternal twist on the present moment, that can't even take away the value of what he's written. Um, but it kind of undermines it according to our author here today. Yeah, so again, from the perspective of the author, from a secular perspective, this life is all there is. And the struggle is to, to find meaning in this life because it's just so easy to, via imagination, daydreaming or whatnot, just dream of another life, a life where you don't have X, Y, Z as your ongoing problems, where you do have different assets, different relationships, who knows, a different job perhaps. And so I wanna read a quote here that summarizes the project. So Nausgaard writes, the life around me was not meaningful. I always longed to be away from it, he writes. So the life I led was not my own. I tried to make it mine. This was my struggle. So, okay, so that's, this is a struggle. So it is possible to become alienated from the very life that you're living, to diminish its value, its importance for a variety of reasons. Maybe you're going through painful experiences or maybe you don't have something that you feel you need in order to truly enjoy your life and to truly be able to see it as meaningful. So that is the struggle that he has and I think it's very relatable. I think we all have that struggle from time to time. Doesn't matter how famous or unknown you are, how successful or unsuccessful. I think this is definitely a struggle that we have, especially, so this is, what? Yeah, go ahead. especially in our capitalistic society where our achievements, right? define our sense of worth, our achievements, our notoriety. It, it tells us how valuable or important we are. Yeah, go ahead. So what kind of struck me here was that Augustine was essentially a fairly prominent Christian. So he was writing from a position of fame and authority at least halfway through his career. I hear these legends of people breaking into his office to steal the things he was in the middle of writing because it was so hot, such a hot topic. <laughs> but but um, Nosgaard, as far as I know, is pretty much just some dude who sat down at his computer and started writing about his life. That's it. Like <laughs> He's just some guy who happened to pay attention to his own life. It wasn't an extraordinary life. It's, it was just a life. But he, he produced what's become and i haven't read it but i'm really tempted to after reading um after reading our martin Hagland's uh, description of it produce something tremendous uh something that not only allowed him to own and appreciate his own life but allows others to do the same thing because as they see what he's done they realize that everybody could do that it's within everybody's reach to pay attention to your present moment to your present life um mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, let me read another thing here. And then I want to give some examples. So this is Martin Hagland. 
commenting. He says, to disown, to disown your life in this situation is to settle for mere perseverance, going through the motions while numbing yourself and dreaming of being somewhere else. So if this is how you're living your life, and of course it's understandable that sometimes we will be here. Uh, we're not saying we should never be here. It may be the case that you may have to spend a decade here, okay? I'll just put it that way. But I mean, that's not where you want to be. That's not where you want to remain. You do not want to disown your life. You don't want to settle for mere perseverance. You do not want to go through the motions, numbing yourself in different ways and always dreaming of being somewhere else. It's very, very easy to do this. It's very hard not to do this. I think I just contradicted myself. Let me just give an example of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or it was a dialectical pairing, perhaps. No. Excellent. Yeah. So, like, uh, I'm married, right? I have a son who's eight years old. And Ben, you're married. You have little kids. When you have That's small different. children, it is such a taxing demand. It took me a while to get used to the fact that I always have to think about my son. Of course, I love my son. I absolutely love my son. Jean-Luc, I love you. But uh, yeah, it, it, it is quite an adjustment going from, I'm married, but I don't have children. Therefore, I have all this time I can do X, Y, and Z. Of course, you know that you have to spend time with your partner, do things and, and so forth. So now I have children. And the fact that I have children now present new challenges at work, right? So there are, for example, women. This is especially true of women. Uh, working women who have children versus working women that don't have children. <laughs> A lot of times, working women with children end up not being able to advance in their careers because they know that they have other demands to attend to. And so they'll turn down, they'll turn down promotions and they will sacrifice everything for the well-being of their children, sometimes to the detriment of their career. I think it is very difficult to uh, balance too. Also for husbands, I'm sure, but I think for women, this tends to be uh, more of an issue. Well, it also has to do with the division of labor between any parents involved. Mm -hmm. who's willing to um yeah and i think that's that's a problem is that is that and i'm i mean i'm challenged by this myself is that how what i agree to do around the house um has a big effect on the life for the rest of my family <laughs> and uh i'm and if yeah because any time that that i spend doing something uh, is time that my wife doesn't have to spend doing it um yeah yeah Okay, let's let's revisit the technique, right? Like apparently the entire 3,600 pages is just an exploration, an analysis of his own life. And so this is what he said that he did. So this is the advice here. Attach yourself to what you see. Okay, so you have to observe. You have to attach yourself to what you see. You have to focus your gaze by attaching yourself to what you see. So... The idea here is not just 
it's not meditation, it's reflection, it's paying attention to what is going on in your life and making the decision to attach yourself to this, to say, yes, this that I'm observing, this that I'm describing, this is my life. This is my lot in life. I don't know how long it will be, but right now it is. And so embracing it, accepting it, and making that the means of being able eventually to more fully affirm and embrace your own life, thereby enjoying your life more because you're able to see good things that otherwise go unnoticed if you're not observant. I think also the, uh, I'm always reminded of Martin Buber and his, his I thou versus I it relations. And um, we can relate to other people as people or as objects. I can have an I it encounter with another person if I treat them as a means to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if I need somebody to check out my groceries at the grocery store, I don't really pay attention to who they are or how they're feeling. Um, maybe I'm in a rush. That's an I it encounter I just had with a person. Or I can have an I thou encounter where I look to see are they okay? How are they feeling? And I sincerely wish them well and say goodbye as I leave, or I'm polite to them. I can have an I thou encounter with anybody in a trivial situation, but I have to actually pay attention mm-hmm. to that person in front of me. And there's no time to do it except the present. That's the only time it's possible to have an I thou encounter. Um, and yeah. there's no way to do it except to pay attention. There's no way to have an I thou encounter without paying attention. <laughs> uh, so that's not what he says in this book, but but that's sort of how I connect it with what I already know. Yeah. Okay, let's connect this to Buddhism. He talks about Buddhism. Do you want to talk about this? Sure. So he, uh, our author, Martin Hagelin, he describes how... Nosgaard's writing, this autobiographical writing that involves a demonstration of paying close attention, how it can be described as a form of mindfulness. And I've I've even run into this mindfulness phenomenon in my workplace uh, where it's been recommended to us. And mindfulness is, is, is is a strategy for dealing with stress. That's how it's been packaged when I encountered it. Um, it's drawing on, on Buddhist wisdom, Buddhist meditation. Uh, I don't know how the Buddhists feel about that. Like maybe they haven't gotten a fair representation in the mindfulness literature that, uh, that's make, reaching my workplace, but nevertheless. So anyway, at the bottom of the, the bottom line is that the mindfulness strategy is to, um, I'll quote here, to focus your inner gaze and attend to your attachments with the aim of detaching yourself from the struggles they entail. So if I feel frustrated, um, a mindfulness approach to that moment is to, is to pause, pay attention, note that I feel frustrated and sort of observe myself feeling frustrated in a detached way to sort of create a bit of separation between myself and the frustration to even to detach from it. That's essentially like the mindfulness approach as I understand it. 
Okay, this book is not recommending that strategy in particular. It's not about looking at things and detaching from them. It's about looking at things and attaching yourself to them. It's about becoming more attached to the life you have rather than becoming uh, less attached. Rather than trying to comfort yourself through detachment, we're trying to increase the meaning in our life through attachment. Uh, yeah, so with, with the Buddhism technique, this uh, mindfulness, right? The aim is, of course, you want to detach yourself so that you minimize suffering and stress. With what we're talking about here is you want to attach yourself to what you see, to what is happening, to what you're doing, to maximize engagement and therefore enjoyment and also pain. You're going now, let me to just clarify something more. You're going to suffer more as well. But yes, yes. What I want to clarify here with attachment. So I'll read an important quote here. Um, to own your life is not to own what you love. It, it is not your possession, but to own that you love what you love. So when we talk about attachment, we're not saying I am now attached to this person. I am dependent upon them. I need them to act a certain way for myself to be happy or so on. Uh, this is, I think, generally regarded as unhealthy. Let me guess. We should call the experts. <laughs> Codependency. <laughs> Yes. So it's not attaching in order to own or conquer what we observe, but it's to own that we love what we love. So I think one analogy I thought was, I don't know if you, what your school was like, but in my high school experience, I found that a lot of people were trying to be cool and cool means detached. Coolness meant not being too excited about anything in particular. <laughs> but as I got older, I noticed, hey, everybody's becoming really nerdy all of a sudden. What's going on? And that's because people were becoming willing to, to own the fact that they love such and such, like to mm -hmm. own the fact that they love Star Wars or that they love Star Trek or that mm -hmm. they love fantasy mm -hmm. football or whatever other thing. It's, it's just owning that you love something um, rather than trying to own that thing. And I think that the funny thing about nerd culture or fandom is that they don't actually get to own anything it's a fantasy it's not even real often the things that they're interested in but they are fully owning that they actually love something in particular and i think that that's the that's what we're talking about here is mm -hmm. in this life that i have it may feel dull it may feel stressful um, but i get to choose what i'm going to love and i get to choose to own the fact that I've decided to love those things or that I've committed myself to loving those things or to paying attention to those things. That's an incredible amount of freedom. That's a credible amount of meaning that we can bring to our lives such as they are. Um, and it does not actually involve controlling the things around us. So it, it maybe there is a compatibility with a sort of stoic detachment because we're not controlling. Mm. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a matter of, it's a self-forming choice yeah, maybe it is closer to this. Um, virtue is the only good approach than yeah. we realize. So, so we cannot own what we love, but we need to own that we love what we love. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I think also I would add we need to also own that a lot of people are not going to love what we love. 
Yeah. And we need to be okay with that. And so, for example, theology nerds, philosophy nerds, it's it can be lonely, right? Because you know that most people, they're not exactly thrilled about the type of questions that you have. And yeah, that's something that you have to accept. The we're, like the project that we're that this book is all about is trying to make the most of finitude um, to to combat the fact the idea that we need to overcome the fact that we are always living in light of death. And we need to overcome the fact that we are actually dependent upon other people for our existence. So how do you love in this context of finitude? You just need to own that you love what you love, to choose what you love and to own that you love it, um, to remain vulnerable to what you love, to remain vulnerable to the fact that your projects may fail, um, to remain grateful for the time that you have, to not presume that you're gonna have more time than you actually will. Um, to not devalue even the short times that we do have with people, especially children, I guess. They kind of grow up fast. Mine are growing up pretty fast, as far as I know. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, life is short. Childhood is shorter. And, um, and there's really no guarantee. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of healthy things to consider here. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, well, we will continue next week. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, please get the book. It's, it's a great book. You should read it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.